Welcome to another new episode of the Declutter Me podcast with myself, Shalina. This week, my guest is Anne Welsh from Tidy Beginnings. Anne has been a professional librarian for nearly 30 years, specialising in cataloguing, including creating inventories for estates. So I thought it'd be great to talk to Anne about the work she does and how she helps her clients. Welcome, Anne, to the Declutter Me podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on. I'm just like so excited because like I have clients, especially now, you know, people are passing away and then the kids have to look after the stuff and there's a lot of stuff here that hasn't been looked after, catalogued, archived, whatever. Um, mostly Arabic, which is a bit of a problem when I'm having to deal with it, but it's still something they have to deal with. You know, 16 years, I still haven't learned the, the language. But anyway, um, but yeah, so, but when I, you know, when we were chatting and, you know, I brought it up on our group because we belong to the Association of Professional Declutterers and Organisers, is that, yes, that's APTO, right, uh, in the UK. So when you mentioned it and then you told me all about it, I was like, right, you need to be on, you need to tell us everything. So, right, tell us. So you have a rich background, which I've just talked about, but tell us everything and how you got to now. Like, so what did you do before you were an organiser? Okay, well, first of all, it's so exciting to have somebody so excited about talking about librarianship. (laughs) (laughs) I am that kind of nerdy loser kind of person. We're not losers. No, we're nerds. For me, I've been a professional librarian for almost 30 years um, and I worked mainly, when I worked for institutions, I worked mainly small special libraries and uh, also with some private clients um, and I spent over 10 years teaching the next generation of heritage professionals how to handle rare books and also importantly how to document them. So I found out about professional organising only last year because one of Ah. my clients on my private librarianship side asked me for help with their wardrobe. And I mean, I have to say, this is it is cold in London today, (laughs) but this is about my normal level of style. So searches to see what is best practice with helping another human being who looks a bit better than I do with her wardrobe. Um, And I found uh, APTO, um, as you said, the Association of Professional um, Declutterers and Organisers. And since then, um, I've taken on some non-book projects. So I'm quite odd because I see myself as a private librarian who also does non-book things. Um, Because we've had a lot of lockdowns here, it's mainly been virtual organising. And I think I enjoy that because when I was an academic, um, it was during the transition from face-to-face teaching to what we call blended learning so a mixture of face-to-face and online um, right. and I hacked some of the software that I've been using for 10 years um, in higher education to make a virtual organizing space so each of my clients we can we chat online or on the phone and then we've got stuff to keep up with and right. uh, records milestones for them um, all in one space and they know what they're ah. doing they share pictures and files and that type of thing yeah it feels like just giving people a tutorial in old money when I'm yeah. at the university so that's kind of my practice now is split between those two things and then almost completely separately but really just irrelevant for this still training people so I wrote the core textbook on how to catalogue um, right sent the update to that to press uh, last week. Um, Ooh, okay. 
Yeah, so I still, the bulk of my income probably still comes from training heritage professionals how to catalogue both online and in the real world. Okay. What is cataloguing and why is it important? Yeah, so at its simplest level, cataloguing is the documentation of books and also other items so that other people, most commonly library and archive users or people, say, browsing a museum website, can find them, even right. if they don't know that, that that specific thing exists. So they might be running a subject search or they might just want another thing by a particular author or in a particular medium. And mm. the metadata that we create as professionals forms a surrogate of the item itself so that even if you've never seen it before, you can imagine what it looks like from the description on the computer screen. Um, right, okay. Before it was done on computers, I am old enough that I started out with card catalogues. Um, I remember them. Yes, <laughs> and they still exist. And actually, in your part of the world, there's still masses and masses of projects to move things from card catalogues onto computers. And it's weird. so much stuff. There's every a lot of stuff here is paper still. It's it's tragic, but yeah, I can imagine there's still card cataloging in libraries. <laughs> I think it's really, really wise because in our part of the world, I think we jumped on too soon. We oh, can really? from about 1960, well, from 1966 to be precise, onwards, um, and really we haven't had good computer media for all, for all of this stuff until the late 90s. So the archive. Uh didn't computerise until really the late 90s, early 2000s. And their documentation is a lot whizzier than the cataloguing side. There are records doing the rounds, even from places like the Library of Congress from the late 1960s. Um, mm. well, I think it's quite wise. So it's quite funny because often I'm asked to talk to clients in your part of the world and they say, oh, we're so backward. And I'm like, no, I think you've actually been quite wise to just wait <laughs> much simpler to pay people yeah. to take a bunch of cards put them into a new WSI medium than it is to do some of the projects I do over here where we're taking stuff that's in what was a WSI medium in 1995 and massaging yeah. into, you know, what we need now, um, you know, because technology changes all the time. So yeah, yeah, okay. what we're saying is that cataloguing in the main is the process of rendering something discoverable. Um, right, okay. But at the most prosaic level, um, and for a lot of private clients, the catalogue provides an inventory function. And there are great examples of materials that have been stolen and then identified right. by their catalogue record as precisely that copy of the book from that institution. Um, right. Most famously, there was in uh, Durham, they had a copy of Shakespeare's first folio that went missing. And I think it was about 12 to 15 years later, it turned up again for sale and it had been washed. So they'd literally washed the pages with chemicals to remove a lot of the markings, but there were still enough of the markings remaining that they were able to identify that it must be the copy that had been stolen from Durham. And oh, wow. Massive exhibition to celebrate that. So when we're putting in funding bids for clients to say why they need to document or why they need to document in quite a lot of detail, that's one that we cite all the time but there's lots over the year yeah. you know if a book thief if you ever see an article in a newspaper about a book thief being discovered you can imagine hundreds if not thousands of librarians scurrying around to work out you know there's a lot of the time it'll be like Audubon's Birds of America is one that things get stolen plates get stolen from quite a lot so right, okay. in the background, there's all of these people scurrying around trying to work out is that my copy that's resurfaced can we get it back or did they right copy from somewhere else so, uh, so there's that okay. 
making it as well. So if you have something that you know, like if you happen to have Audubon's Books of America, for example, or something else of that caliber, you would want yeah. it really properly catalogued and documented so that, you know, every single page uh, that had a mark on it, um, any sort of stamps that were on it, and certainly... Um, early modern books have got signatures at the bottom right through really until the end of the 19th century they had signatures on the bottom um of each choir that forms the book right uh, okay you'd want to document it in that level of detail but for okay. most people they're not really cataloging they're just listing any yeah. detail that they could replace it you know if you're just an ordinary person and you know your great granny left you the family bible or the family talmud um, yeah. You want to you know, track that down and um, somebody steals it, the likelihood of getting your own copy back is quite slim. So what right, we okay. want to do is get as close a replacement, like for like in insurance policy terms. So that's listing and that's something that's very doable at home right. on your own. Okay. Right, okay. But then when if you have a big collection of old books, I mean, I when I lived in London, I used to go to markets and buy old books. So I do have, I think, Chaucer's Tale and some Shakespeare stuff because I love it. But obviously not from his time, but very old copies and antiques. So those are the ones you'd want to uh, like catalogue and, you know, put all this data in because it, it, it might be your value. It could be value, but it depends. I mean, I think what makes people quite scared of books is the same thing that makes them scared of paintings or um, like an antique furniture. The contrast mm. I always draw is if, if you are asked, I mean, I go through, I'm, I'm a nerd, so I go through my insurance policy every year. And if I right. that my great aunt died and she didn't leave me jewellery, she left me money. But if she had left me her engagement ring, for example, um, yeah. No, I know nothing about jewellery, but I would know I could walk into any jeweller on my high street and ask them to value that for me and pay them a small sum of money. And they would tell me how much it was worth. And if it was over the amount that my insurance policy said, I had to list it separately. Um, yeah. I would go out and I would be really confident about it um, and quite yeah. happy to do that. Whereas I get a lot of queries in from colleagues in Apto and they're really excited because they found something that's 100 or 200 years old um, and they send me a picture and I sort of look at it and do some searches and I'm like, that is of no value to anybody apart from the person. That, that uh... so commonly you'll have, you know, local histories of churches, for example, turn up quite a lot. Right. And they really valuable. They're often very expensively made. I have one of my home church that I grew up in and I picked it up for the princely sum of £5.20. And if, right, I, okay. if I wanted to retail it, I would retail it for about a tenner. And I, would, oh, okay. and I would accept about eight quid. And it's beautiful. It's got, you know, it's a publisher's binding with beautiful gilt uh, Celtic cross on the front of it. It's well over yeah. 100 years old. It's beautiful. The plates in it are absolutely gorgeous. The production value is amazing. However, any institution that wants to own that already does. Before I bought it, I had a quick yeah. look at all of the libraries that I knew that might want it. Because if I'd seen that my old library that I grew up with that made me want to be a librarian didn't have their copy anymore, I would have pinged them and gone, hey, do you know you could pick this up for £5.20? Um, yeah. But basically they've got it, Glasgow's got it, several of the universities in the west of Scotland have got it. So there's not going to be an institutional buyer for that. It's just going to be right. other people who were once congregants at that church. So it's beautiful and I love it. And it's one of my most precious items. But financially, it's it's worth, well, I, as I say, I would I would hope to get about a tenner for it, selling it professionally. Right. 
and I would accept them. So I think that's a scary thing for people is knowing whether they actually need to bother listing something or not and knowing who they can trust to find out do they actually need to list it. So so that's, that's, I think, probably the thing that is quite scary for people, just knowing, do I need to catalogue this? Do I need to even list it on my insurance policy? I think, yeah, so there's that. So, I mean, what would be the process for you? Because you won't want to work with people I know I, I have one client I know for sure will definitely need to use your services because yeah. he does have like um you know art books from Picasso and other artists and books that yeah. are first edition you know copies from Barack Obama first editions there are things like that and they're very very I, I saw it's he knows what the value is of them so he would definitely be someone I need to pass on to you but for a lot of other people they it's are we saying that it might not just be worth their time or they can just do an excel spreadsheet or use one of the apps on their phone to put all this you know if they think it's valuable for the family yeah i mean the one of the common things that people ask me is you know i get lots of phone calls that basically say i've just been left some books and I don't know anything about them and I don't know what I need to do with them and do I need to put them on my insurance policy and what the hell is it? Um, mm. and so I'll have a quick chat with them and try and work out sort of what situation they're in. Um, I do work with people at all different um, levels, but the process that I've described to people, if they really aren't sure and they don't have a lot of money to spend basically finding out if what they have is valuable, mm. is a website called Abe Books. A, and my Scottish accent doesn't help. So it's right. Abe uh, Books, and it's A as an apple, um, abebooks.co.uk or abebooks.com that you can right. search on. And that uh, a mixture of actual dealers, quite low-level dealers, and uh, people who are just selling their family goods. Um, And it's a step up from eBay uh, because it is people who know a bit about books and that will give you a good idea. If you can find the same edition of the book that you have listed on eBay and you can see two or three people are listing that book at about a thousand pounds, then there's a good chance that the retail value of that book will be about a thousand pounds. And I think make a little bundle it depends on what they're where they're basing that where they're based what their insurance policy will say but you know if the insurance policy says list separately everything that's worth over a thousand pounds then make a little bundle of those and then go to a good local book dealer and um, i had a quick look so for you guys a lot of uh, people still will be members of the antiquarian booksellers association here Right, okay. A member of the American Antiquarian Booksellers Association. It looks right. like there is a booksellers association more locally. Um, and I'm not an expert in Arabic books, so right, okay. check with one of the universities. Um, yeah, yeah. You've got a big collection of Arabic stuff. They will know that there'll be so few people that are experts in Arabic books, even where you are. Yeah, yeah. To talk to to find out what they're worth. But if what you have is English language or French language, any of the European language books, then you can talk to um, an American 
uh, Booksellers Association or the Antiquarian Booksellers Association over here. And it's really right. important to go with somebody that is registered with one of those two for two right. reasons. One, because a bit, well, I was going to say a bit like with Apto, but even more so than Apto, there's a lot of security checks that go on to make sure that these people are not just going to rip other people off. Um, right, yeah. Secondly, if what you're asking for is for insurance purposes, um, you're asking somebody to sign their good name to the value of the book, like quite literally. Um, so right, people, okay. if you take the books in, I mean, what I say to people is find two booksellers, go in if you're really cheap and don't have the money, find two booksellers, go into one and just say, I'm thinking of selling these books, what would you give them? Give me for them? And they'll mm. tell you for free because, you know, they're thinking of doing a trade and you go, thanks very much, I'll think about it. And then go to a different bookseller with all of the ones that looked like they were going to be over your insurance threshold. And to that bookseller say, I've got these books that I really need valued for insurance purposes. How much would you charge to give me a valuation on these books? Because they will right. charge a certain sum of money uh, to provide that valuation that goes into your schedule. Um, right. um, and because if you think about how it's going to be used, that's quite fair because ultimately yeah. you're not going to make a claim or your heirs aren't going to start fighting over a book unless it is worth something. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that person's good name that they're putting up front. So that's how right. you find out if you weren't sure. Um, okay. A lot of my clients are still very much. I've come from a background of working with artists and writers, and so yeah. most of my clients are still from that background. So they're right. approaching in a slightly different way uh, because their concerns are usually uh, very much about legacy, and it mm. used to be that if you were published and kind of at the mid-range or above there would be a good chance that when you died um your ears could just simply approach you know your old university if you went through college someplace or any other university and they would say yeah we'll take them in but right. with um buildings costing so much now and people realizing how much it costs to process books what happens is people are coming up against an issue so they're approaching their old university and saying I've not got any room in my studio for my books and papers anymore. Could you take mm. off my hands? And then they're told, well, we might be able to, but we need all of this information. And right, okay. The point at which most of the clients that I have come to me. Uh, because right, okay. What we're looking for is proper cataloging to use as a sales tool. And it might right. be that the actual items individually are not worth financially very much at all. But as a composite, it can be quite valuable. Um, right. Certainly, there's a huge amount of scholarly value um, in, involved in most of the collections that I've worked with. Uh, but the the time that it takes for professional library and archive staff to assess is something that universities, which have been cut back to the bone, don't have right. the money to invest in that. So they kind of push back and they say to the artist or writer or their ears, if it's after the person's death, yeah. uh, to see a proper catalogue. Um, to, in order to just see if it's even worse getting on the tube and coming right. to look at, at what you've actually got. Um, okay. So sometimes they'll go straight to a book dealer and the book dealer, if it's a big name, there's not a problem. I mean, the one that's always quoted or usually quoted to me when people come is Iris Murdoch because when she died, she left three separate libraries, all of which had fed into her own writing process for philosophy and fiction. Okay. Ah. John Bailey sold those three libraries at three different times. Right. 
Um, and and also, good, I think he sold the libraries and donated the papers. I think that's the right way around. Um, and they were bought mostly by Kingston um, and so. And that then formed the Iris Murdoch Centre, which is now a big centre for scholarship around her. But unfortunately, right. not everybody's Iris Murdoch. And the hard thing is, it's not about how popular you are. Mm. Um, it's it's such a weird market, especially when you get into the institutional side of things. It's such right. a weird market. There are bigger names that I won't say out loud than Iris Murdoch who have struggled to find homes for their materials, ah, okay. a market for the materials. And so what's happened now is the book dealers have realised they can create a certain amount of market, but there's a certain amount of scholarly interest that needs to be generated. And so we're starting to get a lot of younger, and when I say younger, I'm 48 and I'm talking about people my age, right? So right. people who are thinking they're going to die anytime soon, please God. But, you know, who just are thinking, right, I need to actually establish my legacy. So some right. of it is about working with people to say, okay, so this book that you've got out is now a bestseller. This might be a good time to go through all of the papers that went into this book and work out uh... for it and try and establish, I call it a pipeline. I'm sure that's not a term that's unique to me, but when right. I, that's it. We'll, we'll, we'll try and establish a pipeline for your work so that you know which institutions are interested and if they're interested in, in it now, once they've got something, they'll want more. And so it's yep. yeah. to drip feed in that way. And over here, finally, there's like a big uh, pushback, um, which I don't quite understand, but there's a big pushback from people who worry a lot because the Ransom Centre in Texas is the one institution in the world that has lots and lots of space. So right. lots of writers who their absolute dread is ending up in the Ransom Centre because it means that anybody who wants to study them will have to go to Texas to study their papers. Um, right. And also because the Ransom Centre, on the one hand, pays more than anybody else. I mean, they've won some amazing bidding wars, uh, but also they will take people who can't get money for the papers. It's like, great, you're right. well-known or an artist that's well-known, we'll take your materials. Um, right. Especially their books, the books that people in the Ransom Centre will take. And people are like, I don't want to end up in the Ransom. I want to I want to stay, I want to be in the British Library or I want to be in the right. Britain. I want to stay in Britain so that yep. British people can research me, which I, I don't, I don't know. I have to say everybody who said that to me is English. And I don't know if that's a little Englander thing and yep. Scottish. I don't <laughs> get it. Because to me, it doesn't make much odds. You know, somebody's an actual scholar they'll go to wherever the materials are and they'll find a way to yeah. I think I, I suppose with I can see it from I remember at uni and like you know some of my friends were at Cambridge and Oxford that if they had written anything and I mean even now I, I, I was in the publishing world when I first started as a lawyer so um you know I, I used to deal with publishers and uh authors and stuff so I know that especially if it's non-fiction they'll want to be linked to their university or yeah, to be in the British Library would be something. Yeah, that would be amazing. I, even I'm like, yeah, I want to write a book and be in the British Library. It's like, <laughs> it's a it's a British thing. I think it's yeah, it's it's nuts. It's nuts. Yeah, really? I spent hours in there. I am really a nerd, aren't I? I'm <laughs> a lawyer though. I can't remember somebody very very famous. I think it was the person that founded Middle Temple Library, but um, I may be wrong about that attribution. But um, somebody very very famous in the old days said, "Where there are lawyers, there will always be books." 
and that was oh, really? justification for starting uh-huh. uh, law libraries. Yeah. Well, there's there's a few. No law, law, legal ones, I don't think. No, I got rid of all of them. No, I threw them all away. They were all obsolete because all the laws changed. So it's just like, and I don't do it anymore. So, yeah, yeah no. Yeah. yeah. Legal I, books are awful. Yeah, um, like the library manager at Grey's Inn. And we met many years ago when we were both working as junior librarians at Middle Temple. So all right. That's oh my god! A lot of my clients are lawyers, and it was actually uh, a lawyer who wanted her wardrobe sorted. She's one of the most stylish women that I know, and I was like, "You want me t- to help with your wardrobe? <laughs> <laughs> what? Is she friends with Amal Clooney? <laughs> Sadly, yes. I do. I haven't. I haven't had. Oh gosh, could you imagine? I would love to see what her library's like. She must yeah. have amazing like legal library because yeah, she, she must have well, and the cases that she works on. Yeah, but she's also got loads of good, fabulous clothes on at the same time when she goes to court. It's uh, and she's got George Clooney. I don't like her. She's the same age as me, and she's got it all. <laughs> and she's a better lawyer as well. It just sucks. Yeah. Anyway, back to us. Back yeah. to us. Let's forget people. Yes. Yeah, normal people. Um. So, but you. So you talked about books. Do you deal with anything else, like other than? Like I, I know you de- you've dealt with artists, so do you deal with their paintings or just the documents relating to that? I don't do, deal with anything to do with the sale of artists' paintings. I'm not an art historian at all, um, so I tend to pass those on. And also, there's really good established ways. Artists know how to sell their works, and they're trained right. at art school. Um, but the, it's the archival side, really, um, and that's something yeah. like it's been a real learning curve for me coming into APDO is you know people talking about paperwork because what is paperwork because to me it's records um and so a big part of what I do as well and especially um for uh, living people is uh, go through and highlight to them anything that they might not want posterity to know because Um, an archive is always curated you know it's 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 um we don't keep everything um that somebody produces um and so i've seen i always work with non-disclosure agreements by choice um and i've seen some really quite amazing things that people have been just thinking this is my pile of stuff that i'm donating to my university and you go through and i've found some amazing things and i'm like do you really want people to know about this and they're like, no, I don't. What do I do? What do I do? And I'm like, well, it's up to you how you dispose of your own. Right. And this is so, if, so even if they're amazing, they'll still want to get rid of it. Oh, I mean, and like, not want like, really quite salacious things. People, it's it's amazing what people, especially writers and artists, will draw or scribble on the back of. Um, yeah. Quite. Um, I've seen legal documents that they probably wouldn't want a researcher to just happen upon. I've seen love letters from people that they probably wouldn't want the world to know that they ever had uh. a relationship with. I've seen all sorts of things, and of course, the artist has just riffled through and gone, "Oh yeah, that's the drafts for you know whatever a, a piece of work," and they haven't turned over um, and looked on the back to see what's there and so oh my god <laughs> and actually one of the good sites you know i always kind of tell the story as if it's just because institutions are impoverished but it's not just because they're impoverished it's really hard on the archival side 
getting rid of something if it's come yeah. as part of a big name donation. You can get rid of books if it's part of a big name donation relatively easily. But if it's archival material, it's really, really hard. And you certainly couldn't do it just because it might embarrass the person. Mm. So you end up having to embargo certain files, which is like a red flag to researchers that if they wait, you know, usually you do it for 70 years after the person's died. Um, right. that's like a red flag to researchers that they want to dash in. I mean, we've just seen it with Sylvia Plath, where some of her materials um, became live and there was a, a mad rush for researchers to get in there, see what was there and get publishing contracts to talk about that and write books about that. Ah, yes. It was really, really boring, uh, but um, it, it, which was a disappointment to all of us Plath fans, ah. that sort of a thing. So yeah. sometimes people will approach or will be advised, especially by by rare book stealers, because rare book stealers can catalogue, but they'll catalogue right. fail. Um, but they'll often say you might want to get somebody to go through this and just make sure that that you do want all of this to go into the public domain. So it's quite nice. I, I kind of that's the side of my job I probably love most. I'm like a secret squirrel, and I know a lot of um, things about people. Yeah, nobody else will ever know. And yeah, I yeah. enjoy that aspect of it. Um, yeah. Because for me, I studied English. And for me, I always took the attitude that most of the men who wrote great fiction are not people I would ever want to meet in real life. They seem really horrible yeah. and sleazy. And so I think as a, as a young working class woman, I had to take the view, I love the work and the person is irrelevant. So it's yeah. interesting. But does it really matter? You know, it doesn't really matter that so-and-so had a secret affair with person X over here. What matters is the work that so-and-so produced. So for Yeah, me, there is that. that. Yeah. That's my view. But other yeah. people take a different standpoint and they might say, no, we have to keep absolutely everything. And once you're a public person, then everything that you do is in the public. Yeah, I quite enjoy that. And I work completely... Yeah differently because I have a friend who's early onset Alzheimer's and right. I started just helping him and his wife out, his wife's my best friend and I helped, I started helping them out and it's really important for people um, who have the early stages to still feel useful and you know, especially yeah. young um, and I realised that yes there's occupational health and um, you know, things like that but actually there's, it's quite difficult for primary carers to just get a bit of a break. And so I have a couple it of is. who are paying me, you know, a much, much lower rate than anybody sort of, you know, famous would be paying me to go through their papers to just go, mm. around, like I go around and I'll, I'll help the person with Alzheimer's to like wash their tea set, you know, because yes. they did that once a week and they're not able to do it anymore. Or, you know, I had one, I was sort of listing on an invoice for a client and it was literally, you know, activities with so-and-so. And then it was like, you know, um, cutting the tufts from the desire path so that it was safe for them to walk on but still look like Aww. a garden. And, you know, that person just, I love working with people in early stages of Alzheimer's and dementia because it really makes such a joy for them. They're, they're yeah. so proud, you know, when their husband or the wife, you know, usually they just go and sleep in the bedroom because they're so tired. Yeah. But when they wake up and they show, look, we've been doing this this afternoon, they're so proud that they're making a contribution still. And I absolutely yeah. love that side of work because it, yeah. I suppose they're both helping people. As a librarian, you always want to help people. I had no idea that any of these kind of academic and nerdy as I am could just get such joy from. I mean, the other day I was it was actually with my friend and we had to go and collect the veg box 
and there was a lady with who just set up a pop-up stall and we'd got a little takeaway coffee because he loves his posh coffee and I said well yeah. <laughs> just sit here and it was like slow tv and he absolutely loved it just watching this lady make up her bouquets for delivery yeah um and I had no idea that I could just spend an hour and a half sitting you know with my friend who used to be so intellectual and verbal and just enjoying yeah. such a like relaxing thing yeah yeah so happy you know I think that's that's the thing so I love that side of it but again that's really confidential as well because it's somebody who, yeah you know they're always quite vulnerable people with early stage dementia so that's a real privilege too yeah. and I suppose when they're in when they've got dementia or in early stages as well and they haven't done anything about their collections that is a time for you to get in there quickly because what will happen if they don't then you will you can deal with it but you'll deal with it with the heirs how does it work yeah so usually I mean I have helped I've helped my friends with his books and that's quite straightforward his wife is also a librarian so that's relatively straightforward um right and I've got a couple of clients that I've said to their primary carer when it comes time that they need to, and I hate using the word declutter for books, but in the context of somebody with dementia, you know, we know from sort of doing my um, level two, I'm just doing my level three dementia care at the moment. From doing those, I know that there comes a point where a room like the room I'm sitting in now actually becomes distressing, like God forbid. But if I were to get dementia, there would come a point where my beloved living room with my beloved books would actually... Yeah thing to me because there was too much visual clutter yeah. so I, I spoke into the primary carers and what we what we have done is with the primary carer there too we've gone through books with people and we've taken a bit of an oral history so that they're right. talking about the books that matter to them um, and I'm kind mm. of thinking quite heavily about that because I think that's something that I haven't seen a lot of articles about or people really thinking about because although we started this interview talking about the financial and monetary side of things yeah people often will want a memento of somebody and it occurred to me that you know taking just an oral history of someone talking about their books when they're in the early stages will help us with the decluttering process and also help us with the gifting process because there will friends and family members who would love that book that is maybe like my lovely book about the church that I, that I yeah. grew up in you know my, my friend that I grew up with in that church if I died she would absolutely adore that book and love it forever mm. as a memento of me um, and so there will be equivalents so I'm sort of really at the moment at the early stages really thinking quite intensively about that and I think there is yeah there is a need there and I need to there is. the best way of handling that so that the person A, yeah. ripped off, uh, but B, um, that the stuff that is, because that's the thing with, with dementia, it strips the individual of their ability to express meaning for the yeah. As I'm seeing more and more, uh, because the generation is getting older, you know, with the, the, the you know people are living longer, but there is more dementia, there is more Alzheimer's coming up, and with people having important documents and material, whatever that it needs to be documented and catalogued. So that is something I think yeah. will be something you'll be able to help with. But anyway, we've been talking for ages, and it's been amazing. So, um, but um, thank you so much for this. This has been fascinating. I've I've loved it. Like you know, learning all about this, and you know, 
Yeah, thank you so much. So how can people uh, contact you if they are in need of your help? Um, even if they're here, I'm sure you can you can do the, well, you're great at the virtual organizing so that you can talk to them. Organizing. I love virtual organizing. And I would actually like to kind of know more about, you know, what's happening sort of over there um, with non-institutional collections. Um, yeah. like, so the best way is to just go to the Apto directory um, and just... Right. For me, just search for me there or I'm on beginningcataloging.com um, and I okay. have a page on that for tidy beginnings um, but yeah just get in touch or it's info at beginningcataloging.com um, and okay. I'm quite happy if there's enough people that are interested I'm quite happy to do sort of tutorials for people I've done group tutorials in the past for I don't know if you've come across library thing which is a free oh. web web based or cloud-based uh, resource that people can use if they want to catalogue their own collections. Right, okay. People are wanting to do that, especially people who perhaps have, you know, I, I'm a great crime fan, which always surprises right. me. People think I'm going to be into really heavy stuff. But I absolutely love crime fiction. And there are so many people who have lovely um, collections of signed first editions of crime books. Yes. And they're yeah, not... Yeah. Like they're not enough to want to list it separately on your insurance schedule, but when you put the whole lot together, it's quite nice to have. And right. so going, there are a number of people who just want to be able to go. Have I already got that thing? And if I have it, is it signed? So I've yeah. got little group tutorials for people on how to use library thing. Um, so oh, that's good. Oh, that'll be useful for a lot. I know people who do have that. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll put on the show notes your contact details as well so they can get in touch with you. Um, thank you so much for being on the episode. I really do appreciate it. It's been amazing. Um, thanks, as always, for listening to the Declutter Me podcast. If you'd love to get more tips and advice, please follow us on social media um, at uh, Declutter Me on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And if you don't want to miss our next weekly episode, subscribe to the Declutter Me podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Angami or any of your favorite podcast players as well as YouTube and it'll pop up in your notifications each week as well. See you next time. Thank you.